Welcome to The Policy Shop, weekly conversations with public policy experts where we'll dive into the most important issues affecting all of us here in Illinois. I'm Hillary Gowans. Let's get started. Joining me today is Adam Schuster, our Senior Director of Budget and Tax Research. We're going to talk about Governor Pritzker's track record on the state budget. Buckle up. Adam, sometimes your budget research gets me really bummed out. It's not good news, is it? No. (laughs) Um, The good news on the budget is that there's solutions to make it better. But if you just look at the data and the way things have been going really for for 20 years now, um, there's not a lot to get excited about. So you just did a really interesting fact check piece after Governor Pritzker announced that he's campaigning on his track record regarding state finances. Tell us about what was not necessarily true about what the governor was claiming. Uh, Pretty much the whole thing. So (laughs) the, the budget is not balanced. The budget has not been balanced since fiscal year 2001. Pritzker is not the first or only politician in Illinois to mislead people about state finances. Uh, You know, unfortunately, we have a a long track record of politicians who say one thing to the people and to the media and then put another thing in their audited financial reports and disclosures to, to bond buyers and things like that. And so what we do is compare what they tell the public with what the actual official state reports say. And what we see is that you know, so far the smallest budget deficit under Governor Pritzker was about $5.6 billion at the end of the year. What do you mean when you say the budget hasn't been balanced? Because I know that there's a lot of wiggle room that state lawmakers take advantage of when they figure out how they're going to spend our money. You know, the proper definition of balance is the same one that you would use, you know, around your kitchen table at home when you're making your budget for the year. And to, to understand why Pritzker's claim is so wrong, just just ask yourself this question. You know, say you do the budget on New Year's Day uh, for the coming year with your family every year. You sit down to do your budget. You're looking back at the last year and you say, great, we balanced our budget, but our checking account is $20,000 overdrawn. Would anybody call that a balanced budget? Obviously not, right? And that's essentially what Governor Pritzker is doing. Um, he's saying, despite the fact that I have a you know, $5.7, $5.6 billion hole in my general funds at the end of the year, I'm going to call this balanced. Um, the other trick, there's lots of tricks they play, but the, the other really common one is that they count borrowing proceeds as revenue, right? So this is like if you took out a loan from the bank and you counted that towards your income for purposes uh, of balancing your budget. So Pritzker borrowed $3.2 billion from the Federal Reserve during the pandemic for the last budget year. Um, it's not balanced even if you include that money, but another trick he, he plays is they're including that money in the definition of revenue. So we just, as a state, the state of Illinois got $8.5 billion in federal aid. How are we even talking about budget deficits? We got more than $8 billion under the most recent round of federal spending. That's on top of $3.5 billion the year before. That's not even including about $2 billion in extra Medicaid money and all billions and billions more for election security, transit, education, and a bunch of other, you know, direct spending. So there's a flood 
of federal money. Um, if you include public and private, it's about $190 billion just within Illinois that Illinois has gotten. And, and the private support still counts because that props up people's income and spending, which means it props up state tax collections on income and sales tax. Uh, so we're, we have all this money. We're just awash uh, in federal cash. So how do we still have budget deficits? It's just because Illinois' problems are, are that bad. I mean, it, it's also the case that there's new expenses associated with the pandemic, and that there were at least some temporary drops in revenue that ate up some of that. But, but the real answer, the fundamental answer, is that our problems are so huge, and we were so unprepared going into this. We were the least prepared state financially for a recession, according to all all types of expert groups that you know you you cannot expect a federal bailout to solve these problems there, there's no way that you can throw enough money at it whether you take it from the federal government or you take it from taxpayers you can't just solve illinois financial problems by throwing money at it we have deep structural broken systems that that need fundamental reform and the main one is is our pension system we could talk about pensions for a long time. Sure. Before we do that, you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting because in one of your older pieces, older meaning it was published in February of this year, but you wrote that uh, we were initially as a state expected to get $7.5 billion in this latest round of federal aid. But you told me earlier that we actually ended up getting $8.5 billion. And I want you to explain how that happened and why it matters. When the federal government sends money to the states, they have to come up with a formula, right, for how they're going to distribute it, who gets how much. Um, under the CARES Act, they basically did it. So this was the, the act uh, signed by Donald Trump, uh, passed at the March 30th in 2020, so early in the pandemic. Under the CARES Act, the money went out basically proportionally. Everybody got you know the same amount relative to their population. Uh, with the American Rescue Plan Act, the one recently signed by, by President Biden and, and passed through Democratic-majority-controlled Congress, uh, they changed the formula in a couple of ways, but the, the most notable one is that states with higher unemployment rates got more money and, and higher unemployment rates relative to the national average. So what this meant is that we rewarded states with more money if they did things that hurt their economy more. So if they shut down longer, if they provided less support to, to small businesses that caused more joblessness, they got more money. And so states like Illinois... Uh, where you know our our pandemic restrictions have been very hard on small businesses, saw fewer job gains from when the act was initially passed to when they sent out the money. So we ended up getting more money than we initially thought. Now, states that did well, states that grew jobs better, got punished and actually lost money. So it's a very bad incentive structure. I remember back when the pandemic first started in the spring of 2020, not long after that, we were starting to talk about this push that we were seeing in Congress to bail out states. Um, and obviously there was so much going on. There was panic. People didn't know where this was going, what was going to happen. And it felt like there might be a legitimate need for aid. Um, but what I also remember is that when our team was talking about this, we were saying, look, if these massive bailout packages start going through to the states, we could see a big problem here in Illinois. And I want you to explain the thought process behind that federal legislation that you helped draft that would have attached strings to any federal aid money that came to Illinois. Yeah, so what we were looking to avoid is letting people like Pritzker 
claim credit for a job they haven't done. So when he's out there saying, I've balanced the budget, I'm paying down the state's debt, I'm moving us in a fiscally responsible direction, all of those claims are possible only because of this federal aid. And what that does is give him an excuse not to actually fix the problems while allowing him to campaign as if he had. So, you know, we call this moral hazard. And basically what that means is that you don't make people bear the consequences of their actions, and therefore those actions spread to more people. And so not only is it bad for Illinois, but we just sent a message to any state that was responsible and you know did things like save for a rainy day, balance their budget, cut spending ahead of the pandemic when they knew revenues were falling. Those states have now, been, have now seen that Illinois didn't have to do those things and it got bailed out anyway. Uh, the program we wanted would have given aid to state and local governments, but it would have required that they show that they're being fiscally responsible so that we know that the money's the money's being protected and taxpayers are being protected. Uh, and so it would have given the money as, a, as forgivable loans rather than grants. So this is similar to the Paycheck Protection Program, right, where businesses got loans from the federal government, but they didn't have to repay those loans as long as they used it for certain purposes like keeping people on payrolls. So we wanted a taxpayer protection program where we would give states money, but in return they would have to make sure their budgets were truly balanced. Um, that going forward, they had procedures in place to save for a rainy day so they didn't have to count on these bailouts, and that their pet pension systems were sustainable, meaning that they would adjust their debt to the level that they could actually afford without hiking taxes. I remember that there was a lot of pushback on this concept, and it was from both sides. It was from people on the right and people on the left. The right was saying, why would we give any ground to anyone who even wants to allow this federal aid money to go out? The left, of course, is saying that there should be no strings attached. So why was this the pragmatic approach, especially in retrospect? You know, there was a case for, for federal aid. And, you know, after the Great Recession, the federal government did not provide the type of support for state and local governments that a lot of people thought they should. And as a result, you know, there were more state budget cuts, more state tax hikes, and more layoffs to government employees than were probably necessary. And that hurt the economy. So there was a case, and, and especially, you know, that was sort of a, a an ordinary recession caused by economic forces. This, this was a public health crisis, right? And the recession was really a result of those shutdowns. And so we didn't want mass layoffs to, to teachers and firefighters and police officers. We didn't want the state of Illinois to, to hike taxes on people when they're struggling most, which is what would have happened um, likely had they not gotten you know, enough aid. So there was a case for the aid. But again, we, you know, we didn't want it to be no strings attached. We didn't want it to be a blank check that they could kind of take, cover up their problems, and, and keep up the bad behavior. Uh, so we tried to come up with a, a principled compromise that would give them the temporary relief they need to stay afloat while still making sure in the long term they're doing the right things to get their fiscal house in order and, and protect the residents of their state. You alluded to this earlier. That obviously didn't pan out, this this protection plan that would have prevented states like Illinois from getting a blank check, essentially. So, you know, you talk about how this blank check is particularly bad for states like Illinois that have a history of terrible fiscal management. What does that mean? Explain that in a way that normal people who don't spend every day in this stuff would understand. 
Okay, well, first, I just want to briefly say we did kind of get one string in there, which is that uh, the enacted version of legislation prohibited any of the money from being deposited into pension funds. So it wasn't our full program, but, you know, at least a little remnant of it kind of kind of made it in. And I, and I think that's important because it did make it harder, um, you know, uh, uh, prior to that, uh, Senate President Don Harmon had asked for $40 billion, and he wanted $10 billion of that just to put into the pension system, which would have been covering you know, a problem that had nothing to do with the pandemic. But you know, to your question, what does that mean that we, that we have terrible fiscal management? Well, it means that we've spent more money than we've brought in for 21 consecutive years. As a result, we have the highest debt burden relative to the size of our economy and, and, and per taxpayer of any state. So every person in the state of Illinois owns about $54,000 in public debt. You know, I'm certainly not looking for a new debt burden to be added to, to my personal financial situation that has nothing to do with me. Um, and what that debt really represents is a combination of either future tax hikes, most likely future tax hikes. Debt is just, you know, a tax hike that hasn't happened yet. Or further cuts in the services that people who live here actually want and need and care about. And so, you know, the, the fiscal mismanagement, the way it manifests in people's lives is that they're being asked to pay more to their government to get less back from it in return. And, you know, that's a crazy situation and and, <laughs> and it causes people to leave. And it's, it's why we have such a major population loss problem here. I'm really glad that you brought up what you were saying at the end there. Um, I think people look at the Illinois Policy Institute and our reputation for a long time was these are uh, penny pinchers. They don't care about the poor. They don't want good government services. And I, I love how you and Orfe, our chief economist, actually flip that on its head. And you say, look, people will pay taxes and they won't mind it too terribly much so long as they think they're getting a good bang for their buck. And I think that that's a really important statement to get out there. This is what we think. This is what we believe. And what you're saying here is that we keep paying more and people are getting less. Right. So, you know, there's different models of government, um, you know, and some people might prefer a higher taxing, higher spending government. And we can debate all day, you know, sort of which model is better. But the fact of the matter is there's many high tax states like, you know, California that at least don't see population loss on the scale of Illinois. And it's not just, you know, the high costs of, of the taxes. It's the fact that, that it's high cost plus worsening services. And, and yeah, so that's why Illinois' financial situation is particularly bad. And, you know, what we, what we should be striving for is a government that does only the things that it should do and does them really well, right? A, a small government doesn't have to mean, you know, you're, you're being a penny pincher and you're not spending money on social services or, you know, aid to the disabled or higher education. Um, it just means that, you know, you're, you're spending the money you do collect in the right way. And if we didn't spend so much on pensions, we could spend a lot more on those things that provide more value to people. Speaking about higher education and what the governor's staking his reelection campaign on, he did mention free college, free community college. I, I can't remember which. But one piece of research that I thought was really interesting that you did a while back, and you reminded me of this the other day, was how much we could invest in our higher education per person if we didn't have this pension problem. Can you share a little bit about that? Pensions used to take up about 4% of the state budget throughout the 90s. 
Today, well, for, for several years now, it's been more than 25%, and that number's rapidly approaching 30%. So as pensions eat up more and more of the pie, there's less money available for everything else, including higher education. But if we still spent that 4% of the budget on pensions that we used to spend in the 90s, we could essentially afford free college for every student currently enrolled in an Illinois public university. We could actually pay for more than the average annual cost of attending the University of Illinois. We could give that much in grants to every student enrolled in a public university in this state. Uh, instead, what we've seen is that MAP grants, which is a program to, to help low-income students afford college, have been steadily cut over the last decade, and they've made a little bit of a rebound uh, just in the last couple of years, but they're still far short of, of what somebody actually needs to afford college. So this is, this is just a great way of showing how our priorities are butting heads and how the, the aspirations that Pritzker and, and other politicians have for what they'd like to be provided to people are, are blocked by the pension crisis. Yeah, the numbers don't lie. I mean, you can stump on whatever you want to stump on. But at the end of the day, we are not investing in students, in services, in people. We are investing in debt. And I, I think that's really important for people to keep in mind. You mentioned earlier that Pritzker is able to take credit for what he calls balancing the budget because the state of Illinois got so much federal aid money and, and how that's frustrating from a public policy perspective. I want to talk about the things that Pritzker wanted to do before that federal bailout manifested, because he was talking about doing some pretty terrible things. He wanted to hike taxes on small business. He wanted to cut low-income tax credit scholarships for kids who needed that money to go to school. What does that tell you? It tells me you know, exactly what we were saying, that the priorities are misaligned. The fact that the governor tried, you know, and, and I just need to step back a second. Not only was he trying to hike taxes on small businesses, he was looking for about a billion dollars um, in tax hikes on small businesses. He tried to sneak it through during a lame duck session of the General Assembly before new lawmakers could be elected and tried to, to sell it as just a, a technical change. Now, what that technical change would have meant is that small businesses, nearly half of which at one point were, were forced to close during the pandemic, many of whom are still struggling with revenues far below pre-pandemic revenues, um, small businesses would have seen uh, and they're, they're, they, by the way, create about two-thirds of new jobs in the state of Illinois. So those job creators would have seen a billion dollars in tax hikes. And not only that, but the way it was structured is it would have been tax hikes on businesses that lost money. So it literally was balancing the budget on the backs of the people who could afford it least. And, and therefore limiting the opportunity to get a job, to see growing wages for everybody else you know, in the state of Illinois who, who rely on those businesses. You know, he, the governor had also said before the federal money came, after the progressive income tax uh, failed, which was sort of his his plan A, was a, a Pandora's box of never-ending tax increases. You know, he said there will be cuts and they will be painful. Those are his words, not mine. The federal government saved us from that, saved us from 
having to rely on a lot of these very punitive measures. Um, but there were better options available. W- without the federal aid, you know, we put out a plan. We put out a plan every year showing how the state of Illinois could balance its budget immediately, start paying down debt, uh, and actually get to the point where we can talk about tax relief within five years. Uh, that's Illinois Forward. It's, it's available on our website. But there were better options available. And so to see someone, you know, threaten these very vindictive and, and harmful policy measures, then be given the flexibility to walk them back because of nothing he did, but because of the federal government, and then take credit <laughs> for uh, balancing the budget and improving the credit rating after he had just been threatening all, you know, all these things uh, is very frustrating. The false choice that you presented has been really frustrating. And, and you see this over and over again from politicians when it's budget season and they say we either have to make painful cuts or we have to hike your taxes every single year why is that a false choice it's a false choice because you can also spend the money you already have better you don't always have to make cuts or tax hikes you can you can reallocate spending and the main way that we could do that is by adjusting the future growth rate in pension benefits. So this doesn't require cutting a penny from a current program. It doesn't require taking away a dollar that has already been earned by a public worker for work they've already performed. But the way pension funding works is that we're essentially trying to make sure we have enough money set aside to pay for the growth in future promises. Now, if you just adjust the growth rate of those future promises to something that's more reasonable and affordable, we could save about $2.4 billion in our state budget and fully eliminate the pension debt over about 25 years. Now, Pritzker knows that this is an option, has to know that this is an option, and yet he keeps presenting this false choice of, I have to hike everyone's taxes or I have to cut you know, services that people need. And he's doing it because he wants to pretend that that third option, pension reform, doesn't exist so he can avoid upsetting public sector unions. And it's important to clarify, too, when we talk about pension reform, I think there are groups out there that say, you know, we just need to eliminate the pension system altogether, which, of course, isn't realistic. Um, what you're proposing is actually something that would hold people harmless. It wouldn't take away what they've already earned. My mom was a public school teacher. I know firsthand she worked 35 years as a second grade teacher and she knew or she trusted that when she retired, she would have the pension she was promised so that she could you know, have a, a nice, comfortable life. And I get why people freak out when they hear the, the, the phrase pension reform. We're not saying take away my mom's pension. Right. I feel the exact same way. My father was a 30-year career firefighter. I have uh, an aunt who's a teacher. I think most people in the state of Illinois probably know someone who's set to receive a public pension. You know, um, just by the math, it's about 10% of the adult population that's in an Illinois public pension system. So we're all bound, you know, it's one in 10 people. We're all bound to know someone who's getting it. And, you know, because of that, I think any realistic solution to the problem has to account for their interests. And, you know, that's also a moral thing, right? It's not just a, a practical thing. But like you said, these are people who are, who are counting on that money to retire on. And we want to be able to provide our public servants with a secure and comfortable retirement. The problem is we're not doing that now. And the promise we've made is a false promise because we don't have the money set aside to live up to it. 
And so the only promise that really should matter to a public worker is a sustainable pension fund that they know they can count on being there for them in the long run. So, you know, trying to preserve a broken system is ultimately a a self-defeating strategy. And the reform we've proposed, you know, has been enacted in other states. It would match the the legal regime of other states. And I think it's a very reasonable principled compromise. It would do things like replace a 3% compounding guaranteed post-retirement raise with a true cost of living adjustment that's, that's tied to inflation. Because if it's not tied to inflation, you're not adjusting for the cost of living. You're just giving people raises. And you can't do that sun up or sun down, you know, uh, in Illinois, even when the economy's tanking, we're giving people in, in retirement the, these 3% raises. But we can protect the, the benefits that they already have earned. We just need to make sure going forward that they're not growing faster than we can afford because that's what causes the, the service crowd out. That's what causes the tax hikes. And ultimately, again, if we can't afford it, we won't. And that's bad for the worker. So I say this a lot, but I think it bears repeating because it's how a lot of people feel. These are big, big problems. Why do you have hope that we can turn things around? The solutions are out there and the people are ahead of the politicians. So the solution we've proposed, which is to amend the Constitution to recognize this this real distinction between benefits someone's already earned and how fast they grow going forward, a similar amendment was passed in Arizona. In Arizona, they actually had support from public safety unions, police and fire, because those unions realized exactly what I was saying, that you know an insolvent pension fund is not in their best interest and that it makes sense to adjust things so that it's sustainable for their own interest. And here in Illinois, you know, despite the fact that recently our politicians haven't even been willing to talk about this, um, aren't even really being honest about the, the scope of the problem, the people know. And there was a a recent poll, uh, the first poll that asked about this form of a constitutional amendment that that we're talking about, the past future amendment, um, hold harmless amendment. And it found for the first time, 51% of the public supported that that pension reform. And we still have a lot of of public education to do on this issue. So the fact that it's already, you know, above 50% support means that eventually, hopefully, the politicians will catch up. All right. Well, thank you for ending this on a note of hope. I love that about you. I know that everyone else here appreciates that about you. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To keep up with all of our work at the Illinois Policy Institute and to sign up for our newsletter, visit IllinoisPolicy.org. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Policy Shop.